Let me ask that we turn to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 30. The sermon today will be coming from verses 16 to 31. We consider, last time we considered verses 1 to 15. And today we will be considering the final half of this chapter. But for context, I'll read the whole chapter. So let's turn there. 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. And I read. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the, on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters taken captives. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because, of all, because, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his own sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Berso, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and four hundred men. Two hundred stayed behind, who were too exhausted to uh, to cross the brook Berso. They found an Egyptian in the open country, country, and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? She said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Kerathites and against uh, that which belonged to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me 
into the hand of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped ex except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is he who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statue, a statue and a rule for all for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he set apart he set part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoils of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negeb, in Jatir, in Eror, in Sifmoth, in Estemoa, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jerahmalites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Homer, in Boashan, in Atach, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Before we consider God's word, let's ask him for help. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come before you this evening. We ask you that we, as we are about to consider the truth from your word, that you would feed us with the bread of your word, 
that you would give us understanding. We pray, O Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit again so that we may understand the wonderful and glorious truths hidden in your word. Help me, O Lord, to be faithful to the scriptures. Help me to be simple. Help me to be clear as I bring out your word. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen the weak. It is our prayer, O Lord, that you would save the lost. It is our desire and our prayer, O Lord, that you would warn through your word those who are careless and are listening to the preaching this evening. So please be with us and bless this time for us. For we ask this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. One preacher said of the works of God that when God is, or as human beings, when we see God doing one thing, in that one thing, God is accomplishing over a million different things. When God, for example, causes there to be rain, he is giving us rain. He is causing the plants to be watered. But at the same time, he is causing there to be a flood. At the same time, he is causing the roots of a strong tree to be weakened. At the same time, he is providing um, water or moisture for ants to build their ant mound. A lot of things are just achieved by one simple action of God. And we cannot count them. We as human beings, when we look at how God works, we can only say that he is truly great. By doing one thing, he is accomplishing so, so many things. And in this passage this evening, I want us to see the wonderful and beautiful reality of how God, in answering David's prayer, because remember, David, in the, as we saw in the last sermon, in the beginning of chapter 30, he finds himself in a very difficult place. His city has been raided. His uh, children, his family have been taken captive. His property is gone. There is a lot of distress among uh, David. With, and his company, his 600 men. But David cries to the Lord for help. David turns to the Lord for mercy. And he asks the Lord, should I pursue? Should I follow after, after them? And the Lord tells him, do it. As we consider from the verses from verse 16 to 31, we see that God now answers his prayers. 
God answers his prayer. And in answering David's prayer, God doesn't just accomplish one thing. God doesn't just give David one blessing. In one blessing, we see that there are three blessings that come out. Or in one act of mercy, three wonderful blessings come out of it. And I want us this evening, as we consider this passage, I want us first of all to see how wondrous and glorious God is. That he accomplishes much more than we can ever think or imagine by one, by one action of mercy or grace. That as God grants his servant David victory, it comes with multiple other blessings. And we need to see in our own lives that there are times when we just think God has given me just one blessing. I only have this one thing that he has given to me. I would want more. Oh Lord, I want more. But oh, when we realize that when God has given us his mercy, that mercy he gives us, that grace he gives us in Christ has myriads and myriads of other blessings that come in it. When God has saved you, when God's mercy has been poured out on you, it is the blessing that has all other blessings in it. So let us consider this evening, the blessings of God's mercy and especially the blessings of God's mercies to David. And I would like us to look at three of them. Firstly, I want us to see that one of the, in, in God answering the prayer of David, uh, the prayer that he makes, the fact that he strengthens himself in the Lord and he prays, he calls for the effort to be brought and he prays to the Lord, shall I pursue? Um, shall I overtake them? And the Lord answers him. The Lord is merciful to him. We see that the first mercy he grants, his servant, is victory. God grants David victory. And we see this in verses 16 and 17. So in the last sermon, we saw that God was gracious with David and his men. And we saw that one of the wonderful graces or masses that God gave to David is that they stumbled upon a man who had fallen sick. This was not chance. For David and his men to meet this man who was dying in the desert, it wasn't good luck. It was God answering the prayers of David. This was a direct answer to prayer. They meet a sickly man, a man who is dying, and they feed him. And he tells them that he was with a band that had raided Ziklag. And they tell him, and they request him, please take us to 
where this band is. And the man agrees. And we see that he takes them to where the Amalekites are. So this encounter was an answer by God. And now David finds the Amalekites. David finds the men who had raided the homes of his men and also taken his family. But we see in these verses that there is an interesting providence that God brings in David's way. That David not only finds the raiding Amalekite party, but he finds them in the most, uh, how would I put it, in the best situation for him and for his men. Look at verses, verse 16 rather. And when he had taken, uh, and when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating, drinking, and dancing. So these men, this raiding party, are in a very vulnerable situation. The scriptures describe the Amalekites as having a party. They are enjoying themselves. They've had great victory. They are indulging themselves, stuffing themselves with food. They don't know that there is danger. You can imagine having a full, very full stomach and an enemy falls upon you. I mean, that's a terrible situation to be in, right? They are not only eating, they are drinking. So probably there's alcohol, there's wine going round. They are making merry in their hearts. They are celebrating. They are dancing. They, they you know, you can't dance with a, a sword in your hand, isn't it? So this means that they had set down their weapons. They were far away from their weapons and they're enjoying themselves. And this is a wonderful providence that again God brings in the way of his servant, David. That as the wicked are celebrating, as they are rejoicing, as they are enjoying life, as they are dancing to their gods, and they are enjoying the success that they have just had, danger is coming. David couldn't have come at a better time. He came at the right time. Him and his men are looking down and they are seeing people who are ripe for a victory. They are ready. Or rather, these men are not ready, but David and his men are ready to take them on. This is a work of God. It didn't just happen again by surprise that, or by luck that David happened to come at this particular moment. 
And we can all even say that it's a general reality in the Bible that the wicked, as we see the Amalekites, that the wicked are nearest to ruin when they are at ease, when they are rejoicing, when they are saying peace and safety. And then the day of, the evil day is not away from them, isn't it? That's what we always see in the Bible, that when the wicked are enjoying themselves and they think they have, they have succeeded, they are okay, they no longer need anything in this life. Judgment is very near. And what do we see with the Amalekites? We are told in verse 17, and David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. So we see because of the situation that they were in, they were in a very vulnerable place. David and his men are able to take them on. And remember that David is not having his full company of 600 men. He only has 400. They are able to take on this whole company, this whole group of the Amalekites. It was at the moment of merrymaking that, the, uh, that David and his army fall upon these celebrating Amalekites. And we see in this passage that their celebration turns into great horror as they are slain by their attackers. Great judgment comes upon them. David is able to win the battle swiftly. David falls upon them. He's able to, um, to destroy them. 400 do escape. Many commentators say that these 400 were probably, uh, because they are described as young men, it could be that they were slaves. So probably the slaves escaped, but none of the Amalekites escaped. It was, in other words, a decisive victory for David. And this is all because of God's hand being upon David. Now we also see the same thing with the great son of David. That the great son of David, when he shall return, how is it described in the Bible? How will Christ descend on the wicked? In the day of his return, the Bible describes it as a day of victory for Christ. Why? Look at, for example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse, verse 2 and 3. So that we see this points to the great son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ and his victory. When he returns... We are told uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 and 3, 
For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In other words, it will be unexpected. Look at verse 3. While people are saying what? There is, there is peace and security. Then what? Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Very interesting. That in the same way, or I could even say in a more glorious way, Christ, in his second coming, he will come back victorious to save the saints, but also to judge the wicked. And the Bible describes the situation of the wicked at that time. They will be almost like the Amalekites, right? They'll be saying peace and security, prosperity and security. We are doing well. We are at the apex of our lives as a society. We are growing. We are making great strides in development. Then Christ shall come like a thief in the night. My message to those who are here, who are listening to me, and maybe those who are listening to me via the live stream. Don't think that because you are enjoying life right now, that you are safe. Actually, that could be a signal that God's judgment is coming. That the prosperity you are seeing around you and the development you're seeing around your life would be preparing you, fattening you for the kill. Turn away from your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Escape while you still can by putting your hope in him. The wrath and the judgment of God is coming on all sinners. But how blessed are those who will escape, those who will come out as victorious with Christ, the great King, those who will be with him in his second appearance. That is the blessing that you and I have, dear saints, that when our Savior returns, we will escape that judgment. That's a great blessing. We will be victorious with, with him. Let us look forward to that wonderful and great day. Let us continue keeping faith. Let us continue hoping in him. Trusting in him. Not turning to the left or to the right. Our great king is victorious. But then secondly, we see another blessing that comes from the mercy of God. So we've seen firstly that God grants his servant victory and a 
firm victory, a very decisive victory. But then, secondly, we see that God's mercy to David not only gives him victory, but there is restoration. And we see this in verses 18 to 19, 18 and 19 rather. So the victory, the victory that God uh, grants David is firm. It is decisive. No doubt about that. He wins the battle. The Amalekites are dead. And those uh, who are left have fled on camels. But the question we ask ourselves is, David has won the battle, but has he recovered his children? Has he recovered what was taken? Because this was the purpose for the mission, right? You remember, this is why David and his men went out to look for the Amalekites. It wasn't simply that they wanted victory, but they wanted victory in order to restore or get back their families and what had taken from them. We ask ourselves, are their children okay? Are their wives okay? Are their hearts okay? We need to ask ourselves this question because it is important to, for us to understand the victory or the blessing or the mercy that God shows to David. We don't have to wait long for us to answer this question because the author gives us the answer to this. We see in verse 18 those, that wonderful statement, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. Note, all, nothing was lost. Verse 19, nothing was missing. In other words, there was full and complete restoration. And that's a blessing that can only come from God. This is not again. Don't read such a passage as this and see, wow, look at how victorious and uh, brave David and his men were. When we read such a passage, we should see how merciful God was to David. Because something could have happened to one of the children, right? They could have been harmed. But they are all restored. No one is harmed. All is recovered. Nothing was missing. Nothing was missing to the last count. Nothing was missing. When the author here uses those words, recovered all, nothing was missing. He writes this to inform us of the absolute restoration that David and his men were granted by God in this victory. 
it was good that David had won the fight. But it is immensely good, or it is great, that he won the battle and he recovered all that belonged to him intact and safe. This is only the work of God. It is a blessing that results from the mercy of God. The restoration or uh, restoration is one of the themes that comes out a lot in the Old Testament. If you read in the Old Testament, you'll see a lot of that um, coming out. God saying, I will not just rescue you when talking to the, his people Israel, but he says, I will restore. It's a big theme in the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah 40 and verse 30. This is what God says to the people of Israel. Even youths faint and be weary and are weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount on, up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You see a lot. I can read many other passages, but let me just read three. You see a lot of that. God promising his people Israel, his covenant people, I will not only rescue you, I will restore what was taken from you. In Jeremiah 15 and verse 19, Therefore thus says the Lord, If you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. And look at also the prayer. We, we even see it in the prayers in the Old Covenant. In Psalm 80 verse 19. Restore us, O Lord of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So the, sal the salvation of God and the restoration of God are tied together. God has mercy here on his servant. He gives him victory. And he restores to him all that was lost. Everything that was lost. Not one thing is left out. Not one person is harmed. We can even say no one's hair is lost. They are all brought back home to the camp. You can imagine the joy, the rejoicing that was there for David and his men. Looking at their children, looking at their families, looking at what was taken and bringing it back home. That is only, that is the work of God. No one else could do that. God ensured that their families were protected, their properties were protected when they were in the camp of the Amalekites, and now everything is restored. And you know what, dear brethren? You know, in Christ, we have recovered 
what was taken from us because of the fall. You know, in the fall, we lost our communion with God. You remember in the Garden of Eden, what happened? Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. They were no longer allowed to access the presence of God. And we see this even in the, in the old covenant where people still could not approach the Holy of Holies. There was still that communion with God where people could go into the Holy of Holies was not there. It's only the high priest who could do that. And even the high priest himself was afraid that he could die because of his sins. But guess what? In Christ, what was lost in the garden has been restored. We now have access to God, which is the greatest of all blessings. In Christ, we now can approach the presence of God confidently, joyously, without fear. Calling God Abba, Father. Full restoration. And not just a restoration of our relationship with God, but even the restoration of our broken, I would even say dead spirits, dead and broken because of sin. We are told this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, so that we understand the fullness of the restorative power of Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Not simply remade, not simply patched up, a new creation, total, full restoration. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, for those who are listening to me and you're still in your sins, you're still dead in your sins. Oh, look at this wonderful blessing that you can get in Christ. To be, to be made a new creation. To be restored to God. This can only happen in Christ. Turn to Him. He will save you. He will make you afresh. You might say, well, preacher, you know, I have tried. I have tried rehab. I have tried this thing and that thing. And they've not helped me to be the person I would want. And I would say, they can't help you. They can only patch you up. But you know, something that is patched up will again break down, isn't it? But oh, come to Jesus. Full restoration, free restoration. Repent of your sins. Look to him, trust in him. And he 
will save you. But then finally, as we come to an end, we have seen first of all the victory, the blessing of victory that comes from God's mercy, God's help to David and his men, the restoration that comes. But then thirdly, we see that there is a blessing that comes to David, where David has a heart that is generous, that God's mercy, God's mercy in him causes him to be generous. You see that in verses 20, all the way to the end of this chapter. David, David's victory over the Amalekites is extraordinary in many ways. He has an easy and profound and very clear victory over his enemies. And we have just seen that he gets back all that belonged to him and his men intact and safe. But it is also an extraordinary victory because he not only gains back what was his, but he gains more, or rather he has a great spoil. He's able to um, take much from the Amalekites. We are told, for example, in verse 20, David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the flock before him and said, this is David's spoil. So David was able to get back what belonged to him. And then on top of that, he gets more. He gets a lot more. God grants him that great mercy or that great blessing. And they are rejoicing and they are going back home. And as they go back home, they meet up the men, the 200 men who are exhausted. And who could not go to war? And a controversy comes up. After this great victory, a controversy emerges with some of those who had gone to David to the battle, making a statement or expressing a uh, what, uh, what was in their heart. As they go back home, the 200 men who are exhausted and unable to fight are simply told, you can only have back what was yours. As for the spoil, it is only for the 400. We see that. Um, verse 22, then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. So these men were not saying this because they wanted to honor David. 
but they were saying it out of a selfish heart. Instead of rejoicing, instead of saying, wow, you know what, guys, we've, we've recovered what was ours. And God has added to us something. Maybe we can share some of these things with you. They were saying, no, 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 no. Only take what belongs to you and go. Mean-spirited. By the way, notice this. Notice that the selfish, the people who are selfish, even though they are brave, because these men were, were brave, isn't it? They went to war. Even though they are brave, the fact that they are selfish, the fact that they are stingy, they are called what? Wicked and worthless fellows. Look at how the Bible lifts up a heart of generosity more than a man who is simply courageous, who can take up a sword and go to battle. Oh, how blessed, how wonderful, how beautiful are the hearts of those who are generous. How refreshing it is to meet someone who is generous than someone who is brave. Now, I'm not saying bravery is not a virtue, it is. But look at this man, brave, strong, courageous. But their hearts are in the wrong place. And that's why the Bible calls them worthless men. When the Bible calls you something, you are that thing. Worthless fellows, wicked men. It was a great and a wicked thing for you to close your heart to the brothers. For you to close your heart to the needs of other people and you have a lot. For you to prosper and to, James put it, puts it this way, that when you see a brother hungry, you look at him, he is hungry. You look at him, he is cold. And you tell him, brother, be warm, be fed. And then do nothing about his situation, and yet you can do it. He actually says that faith is dead. David separates himself from this man. David is not simply a courageous man, he's a generous man. Oh, what virtue there is with a man who is courageous and generous. And we must know that David's generosity to those who, the, those 200 men, is not simply a feel-good generosity. He doesn't do it because he's thinking, you know what, we have a lot, let's just distribute. This is not socialism, okay? This is not, um, I feel so good today. You know what, guys, I will share this with you. That's not 
why David does it. Look at verse 23. But David said, you, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hands the band, uh, the band that came against us. Who will listen to you in this matter? Why did David decide to be generous? It was a generosity that came as a result of God's generosity to him. David was generous because God was generous to him. He had seen the goodness of God. God has, had been so merciful to him. God had been so good to him. God had given him a victory that he did not deserve. God had answered his prayers at a moment. We can actually say that the reason why the Amalekites are raiding Ziklag, remember David was not supposed to be in Ziklag. David was supposed to be in Israel. He had gone to the land of the Philistines. I would say, and many other commentators would say, it was a point of disobedience. But yet the Lord was good to him, was merciful to him. And David says, surely, with what the Lord has given us, if the Lord has been so good to me, he has given me what I don't deserve, why can't I give this man what they don't deserve? The heart of generosity finds its source in the goodness of God. The difference between the world's generosity and the Christian's generosity is that our generosity is as a result of what God has done for us in Christ. Because God has been generous to you and I. Can we withhold the things of this world to our fellow men? Can we look at someone who is hungry and withhold what we have? And that's why the Bible over and over again praises those who are generous. In the Old Covenant, in the New Testament. Because it is godly. God is generous. God is so merciful. God gives and he gives and he gives and he gives and he blesses. And sometimes, not sometimes, every time we receive the blessings of God and we misuse them. But does God stop blessing us? Does God stop giving us his mercy? He still gives us his mercy. We waste his mercy. We trample, trample his mercies. And his mercies are new every morning. We are wasteful children. But yet he keeps on keeping mercies upon us. Oh, if we serve such a generous God, can we withhold? But this generosity of David is a picture of the great generosity 
of the great son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that when Christ was hanging on the cross, he bore upon himself the wrath of God. He won the battle. He came out victorious when he rose from the dead. He had victory over death. He had victory over the power of sin. But then what does the Bible tell us? That Christ gave gifts. He died so that he may be, so that he may give us undeserving souls salvation. We who are his enemies, he has been generous with us. We who are disobedient, doing evil, he was generous with us. And look at the words of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8, so that we see the, the generosity, the wonderful generosity of our Savior. Ephesians 4 verse 7 and 8. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. The picture here is of a victorious Christ ascending. And he gives gifts. To men like you and I. He gave us salvation. He gave us his Holy Spirit. We didn't deserve that. He gave us himself. And the question then comes, why would I gain from the reward of Christ? Why should I gain from his victory? You know how those, probably those 200 men were saying, why should I gain from the victory of David? It is his victory. It is David's spoil. Why should I gain from his reward? And we, like the psalmist, say the same thing, isn't it? Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid for my ransom. What a great saving. He gave us what we did not deserve. He was generous with us. An undeserving, a pitiful group of people. 